is that Ignite um, connected me to many, many more people than I could have through, uh, let's say, the recruitment work. Um, but then Cardiff Red connected me to people and they overlapped with other people. And then the Instagrammers Cardiff connected me to people. And then I got involved with Creative Mornings Cardiff. And, and so I would urge everyone to, you know, if you've got a real interest and a, a passion for something, it's, it's a really good idea to start a side project or, or a thing where you're at the center of it. Because then people come to you and you become renowned for that thing. And if that's a, if you want to, you know, succeed in a creative space, then doing a creative thing that is not for profit or, you know, just doing it because you can do it is a really good idea. And you learn so much through doing it as well. Hello and welcome to episode five of How Do You End Up Doing That? with me, Alex Jeffers. This podcast is all about speaking to people about jobs they've ended up doing and what got them into doing it, because usually people have got a bit of a story to tell about how they ended up doing what they're doing if it's slightly out of the ordinary. This week's episode is with Steve Dimmock, who started his career as an engineer and currently works as the commercial director for Awen Cultural Trust. Prior to this, however, Steve was one of the founding members of Dupol, which is probably what he's best known for in the startup world. Steve was also the host of Ignite, and has been involved in many other networking and social events based in and around Cardiff. I've known Steve for a long time, and even I was surprised at how varied and jumbled his career path has been. We talk about some of the bad decisions he made when he was at school, and how that ended up shaping his career in the short term, but ultimately how it didn't define his choices in the long run. During the recording, we went off on a massive tangent, and Steve read one of his dad's poems that he had written. It didn't really flow with any part of the conversation after I'd edited it down, but I've included it after the outro music if you want to have a listen to that. If you listen to this and you've got any comments or feedback, anything you'd like to say to me really, feel free to drop me an email to alex at howdyou.com. That's H-O-W-D-Y-O-U dot com. And I'll take a look at any emails that come across and hopefully I can get back to you with some answers. So let's get stuck into our conversation with Steve. Cheers! Steve, how's it going? Good morning, sir. Good to see you again. How are you doing? Yeah, all good, mate. All good. It's been um, it's been quite quite some time, hasn't it? Since uh, we last were in a room together, I think, uh, from those years ago. Working. I think that's the... a good way of putting it. <laughs> it makes it sounds like it was a yeah a dark and seedy room. Maybe it, it was. Well, it was. Uh, I feel like it was the the, the indie cube down the bay, and then the one in the centre of town. Um, not yes, dark rooms, but not particularly nice rooms, especially the one in St. Line House, which constantly had a leak on the first yes. floor. Um, yeah. Despite being a four-story building, uh, the water would come in through just the first floor. <laughs> but yeah, no, cheers for jumping on the call, Steve. Um, thanks very much. So yeah, do you want to uh, give us a quick introduction as to yeah who, who you are, what, what it is you do? Yep. So, uh, Steve Dimmick, how do we? Uh, I'm Steve Dimmick. I'm a proud Valleys boy who grew up in a, a little town called Bliner in Gwent. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about uh, a lot of the stuff that's happened since then. Uh, but nowadays, I'm a nearly 50-year-old, father of three, uh, ex-CEO of one um, or two or three, and uh, gladly and happily living um, in, in Cardiff and yeah having a good time with life 
Cool, cool. So what is your um, current job role at the moment? What is it? What is the, I can see on the screen, it says commercial director, but uh, is, yeah, that, is so, that accurate? Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. I, I think, um, well, that's my job title. Okay. <laughs> and so uh, I am one year and nine days into my um, new role as commercial director with Awen Cultural Trust. We are a charity um, that runs a trading organization underneath it. And uh, we run theaters, libraries, um, music venues, community centers, uh, a country hotel, uh, and a few other bits and bobs on behalf of local councils. So primarily Bridgend, Blaine Gwent, and Ronda Tav. The take that we make from our theaters, our bars, etc is put through the trading company and then we gift aid that profit back to the charity. And it's a very circular kind of organization. And the good news is that the profit that is gift aided back um, helps us then to run our charitable projects. The two kind of flagship ones are called Beleaf and Wood Bee, and they are a horticultural and gardening center um, and a carpentry kind of workshop uh, for adults with learning disabilities. So it's a really, really wholesome yeah. Yeah. Very, very nature hotel you know uh community it sounds far too wholesome for for you if i'm honest <laughs> i mean i don't know where to start taking offense at that um yeah, no i'm so, only joking i'm only joking no no it's cool i think that for me having been in the um pretty kind of full-on industry of SaaS software for eight years of my life and all that went with it, I wanted a job. Oh God, I'm going to sound cliched and, and very cheesy and middle-aged here, but I wanted a job that was giving something back. Um, I grew up, as I said earlier, in the valleys with surrounded by amazing countryside and, and nature and wildlife. My dad was a fisherman and, you know, so getting back into nature and having a hundred acre country park as the backdrop to the office is, is a great, great thing for me. And literally the businesses or the organization's uh, purpose is to make people's lives better. And from our time at Ignite, from the work I've done with my book clubs and everything else, I think that's a strong, like goes through me like a, a stick of rock is that I like to make people feel better um, however I can. And so this felt like a really good fit. I mean, so, yeah, it sounds definitely um, like the right sort of fit for you, but we'll get into it a bit later. But, you know, as, as long as I've known you, you've always been um, self-employed, uh, yeah. doing things for yourself. You've always been very much more of a out-on-your-own kind of guy. Uh, mm -hmm. Lots of odd things that I think have cropped up uh, over the years of knowing you, including one point I think someone said, oh, have you had Steve's bought field? What? Um, but yeah, so we'll get onto that a bit later, but I think if we kind of, so let's rewind all the way back to the start, um, go about school. So you went to school in Blyna, um, yeah. what sort of, you know, qualifications, uh, were you studying for? How did you find school? Was it enjoyable? Were you, uh, one of the cool kids or, or not? For me growing up in Blyna was, um, it was, it was fantastic. Looking back, I had, um, incredible parents. My mom's still with me. Um, my dad sadly passed away um, back in 2006. Dad used to work at the mine at Ro Rose Aworth. Mam uh, was a, a housewife uh, looking after the kids. Thatcher came along and, and did what she did. And dad went from odd job to odd job. Mam went back into employment and worked at social services. And yeah, dad 
you know, found it tough. His mental health, you know, before we called it that, um, was was a real challenge. And dad was prescribed Prozac, I think, early in his fifties, uh, and was dead before he was sixty. So, oh, in, sorry, at sixty. So it was, um, uh, you know, a, a brilliant home with uh, my brother and sister there as well. Yeah, I had a great bunch of mates. You know, we lived right in the middle of the, the town, um, population of about 3,000, I think, back then. And I had a great time and we were out to play for the majority. I, when I think back to my childhood, it is me running around on the tip, which is what was at the back of our house. And it's the old coal tip that had been grassed over and building bonfires and climbing the big wheel, which was literally the old coal mining wheel um, on the tip, grass slides and um uh, you know building dams in rivers and uh going off and jumping off bridges and taking our bmx's and you know breaking arms and legs and whatever else um proper countryside living then proper yeah uh... pretty pretty feral um and yeah and every now and then you'd catch the x15 to newport to try and buy you know, a, a cool pair of jeans or something or, or if you were really lucky or your parents were rich you might go to cardiff um, so yeah, it was, it was a brilliant place. Um, qualifications wise, I, I really enjoyed school, you know, like all teenage kids, there were, there were bumps in the road and, um, I was definitely not one of the cool kids. I was, I was a SWAT is what we would have called it back then, but I did, I loved sport and I played rugby and, you know, I was in the school rugby team and I got uh, to play for the county, luckily enough, but I also tried other stuff. So I was the only lad from our school that went for a trial for the county hockey squad um, and, uh, you know just I, I was always open to stuff or scouts as well I should mention that I was a proud cub and scout and dip, dip, I, got dip, the, dub, dub. I got the SHIT ripped out of me every week for that uh, yeah exactly <laughs> dip dip dob dob but I was the one that was going abseiling I was the one that was going canoeing I was the one going camping and yeah. everyone else would just hang around in the town and, and I look back and I know it wasn't cool um, but I'm really, really glad I did it because I learned so much and that love of nature was fostered through that as well. Yeah, I think um, that that sort of like the Scouts, definitely uh, Scouts, Cubs, Beavers, Brownies, all of those sorts of organisations, they, they go through like phases of, you know, you're, you're young and you think it's really cool because you're at the club and you get to do all this stuff. You get into a teenager and suddenly it's not very cool, but then mm. you get to an adult and you're like, hang on, all that stuff that I was doing as a teenager that everyone else was like, that's not cool it was actually really cool. And as an adult, you really wish you'd done more of that stuff, despite it at the time being like people mocking you for it. Yeah. And, and there was a trade off. Yeah. So I remember the, the toughest one for kids like me and I can Craig Nash, Leon Chambers, you know, a few, a few of the other lads I remember was Armstead's day. So, um, and, and basically having to do the parade and be there and you weren't allowed to wear your coat and you had to show your woggle and you had to have your beret on and all of this stuff. Um, and your mates from the rugby team, or the cool kids, basically, yeah. would be laughing their heads off at you. And you're there, you know, with a jazz band at the front and laying wreaths and all of this stuff. Well, as a teenager, that's, you know, it, it, it's tough stuff. And, and, and it did, you know, and then you've got to face that feeling of shame and understand, well, I didn't understand why I was ashamed. You know, I couldn't cope with it. But I loved abseiling. I loved messing around. I, I loved learning how to tie knots um, and all of the good stuff that went with it. Um, and so, yeah, I persisted and, you know, it, it was good. 
so yeah all of that i would say that was my education mm-hmm. looking back that was much more my education than the fact i got 10 gcses and at the second attempt i got my a level so i that, there's a fun story here another advice for kids option is that um i was going out with a, a lovely girl called claire jane dunn and um, she chose maths, physics, chemistry for, for A-levels. I was a, a languages like boy. I got, I got an A in French, an A in German, um, but I struggled with physics and chemistry, B and a C, but I was in love with Claire Dunn. <laughs> so I want to do what Claire Dunn's doing. Sure enough, Claire Dunn finished with me in the summer holidays. <laughs> and I then had the perjury of two years sitting with a girl who no longer wanted me doing a topic I no longer had any real interest. And I failed. And then I sat it again um, and I scraped by and got enough to get me into Swansea University. So I did a, uh, and of course, I was then set on that course and I ended up doing chemical and biochemical engineering and, and getting a master's degree uh, in that. Was there a reason why you decided, so you've gone, did your A-levels, obviously, with, in a subject that you were particularly interested in, but then to then continue that through to do a degree in it and not decide at that point I should do something you know maybe do a like a different course in college or do a um, just avoid the the university route altogether go into something more vocational what was the kind of the thinking there yeah so you know 2020 in in retrospect is is reasonably easy and um, I think the context is that I was the first child from my family to to go and that means of the 18 cousins I had, I was the first of us to go to university. Of the 120 kids in our year at school, um, I think only about 20 went to university. So we were not a high performing school. Um, and yeah, that was that was just par for the course. So and my mum and dad hadn't gone to university either. So there was a very kind of linear way of thinking. And at no point did I think, well, my passion was for French, really. And I, I quite kind of like German, and now I'm a Francophile. And I've, I, you know, at university I went out and I spent time living in France, and I'm still in touch with the people that I met 25 years ago, and was back there a year before last to kind of meet up with them. But I didn't have that um, non-linear thinking back then, and it was very much like prescribed. If you're doing this, then you should be doing that. Um, and I think the benefit I have now is with my children, I'm able to say a don't choose what your current love interest is choosing, choose what you love. And secondly, you can change course, you know, you, you can, um, you can change your mind and, and you don't have to follow the path that you believe is the one you should. Yeah. 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 So, you know, if, if you are having second thoughts about something, you're, it's not, it's not too late to change. And at the time, I guess when you're 18, 19, suddenly you sort of think oh, everything's, everything's happening and I've got to make decisions and I've got to decide which route to take. And I've got to set on that course and it's too late to go back and change my mind because, you know, I've just got out of this. Um, yeah. I can see how that would be quite scary to then think, actually I made a mistake and I need to, need to go back and redo it, but it's, it's not too late. And I think you only really appreciate that as you get older, that, yeah. It's really not too late to, to kind of re, redo some stuff. Exactly that. Now I've learned French and, you know, I've, or I've kept the French going. Mm-hmm. I've learned the Welsh language. Um, and so my passion for those, passion for words and languages, you know, it persists. 
and I haven't, I have, as you know, I haven't persisted with chemical engineering. Far from it. I'm not a Walter White. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I was thinking there's definitely a joke there about, I don't know, nightclubs around Cardiff uh, in the 90s. <laughs> okay, cool. So you've gone, um, gone through university, uh, come out of there with a degree you didn't, didn't want or didn't know how to use by the end of it. I think that back then, I think, look, university is transformative. Did you go to uni? No, no, I never went. I say, I, I would say that whilst I said the main learning I got from Bliner was all the stuff that was out to play, mm-hmm. um, the, the main learning from university, and I think most people would say this, is the ability to interact and engage with different people from a diverse background um, and, and realise that your, your own worth, your self-worth, and, um, you know, I came pretty much top of my class in, in year one at university. Having gone in thinking I've scraped through here, I'm going to be struggling, you know, I'm going to be, and I was in the top 10%. I ended up getting a 2-1 and I had a viva for a first and all of that stuff. And nowadays I look back and it, it doesn't matter a, a jot to me. But back then it obviously was super important and I was gutted not to have got first. But if you'd said that to me when I was picking up my failed results off my first set of A-levels, I would have said you were joking. There was no way that I could have been, fast forward four years or five years, and I would have been in that situation. So yeah, I, I think at the end, I was really proud of it. And honestly, that line, but that linear mindset was still there. And the, the only goal in that final year at university was to get onto a management graduate, a graduate management scheme. And so there's a thing called the milk rounds, but all the big companies come around and they literally pick up the, the bright students, basically. And I remember I did that for ICI and I went up to Leeds to do their beauty parade at their factory up in Leeds um, and ended up sleeping on a train station in Stratford on the way home because the trains had run late, but that was, that was a fun experience and same. I did it with Tate and Lyle um, and I failed both of those, uh, but then I got on with Atkins and Atkins are the largest engineering consultancy in the world. Um, and so it was, you know, at that point, it was just what I wanted, so I thought. Mm. And I guess at the time, you know, there's large management consultancy in the world, I guess you've got opportunities to travel and um, for someone who inherently actually really likes languages, I can imagine that was actually quite an appealing yeah. option there. Yeah, yeah, that was. Um, and. And it did happen. We went over to Paris to meet with Bouygues, uh, one of the other big engineering consultancies that were working on an oil rig design that we were, we, I was, I was focused on. Um, and we got to meet them at uh, the uh, Jardin, Jardin Tuilier. Um, and it was, you know, great. Um, but I think that for anyone listening, ultimately, when you join a large corporation as a graduate, or certainly 25 years ago, I was joining as a management consultant and the only thing I managed to consult was Excel spreadsheets, literally day after day after day. And this is, you know, way before, let's say Excel or any spreadsheet is such as it is now. And so we would, and this is God's honest truth, we would set a spreadsheet to run overnight. So I would do my work and then leave and you'd kind of press go and then it would start doing the calculations. Right. And there were that many calculations that I'd come in the next morning and sometimes it would still be running. So it's it's crazy now thinking back, you know, the speed of everything now, thinking back to those days. Uh, so management consultant, you you are a, uh, an Excel, Excel monkey, 
Um, yes. So um, going through that, what was that your sort of like, you know, your day to day? How long did you stick stick at it? Yeah. So I went there in September 98, graduated in June 98, went up to London, um, Dick Whittington-esque, um, and worked on Tottenham Court Road at their offices there, big 11th story, glass and steel, looking out over the city on 18 grand, I think, okay. uh, was my starting salary. What year was this? Um, 1988. Uh, sorry, 1998. 1998. Yeah. So 18 grand in 98 would have been quite a Yeah, I think you know, it, was, yeah. it was a reasonable one. And within, well, yeah, I'll, I'll get to that bit now. But I was there for, so starting in September, it would have been about six or nine months. And the price of oil, so I was mainly working in the oil and gas uh, department. And the price of oil dropped to under $10 a barrel. And Atkins had to take some drastic actions. And that meant closing the Tottenham Court Road office because the rent was too high. Okay. Um, so, Steve, you have the option of going to our headquarters in Epsom, um, or you can go to Golden Square in Aberdeen, uh, which is closest to the rigs. Um, and okay. that's where we do the more kind of technical elements. So I chose Aberdeen and, and went up to Aberdeen in July of, uh, 99 and got put up in digs there and you know to find my feet all that joined the local rugby club had a brilliant time uh, with Gordonians in pre-season rugby and you know but was going in and again XL monkey my advice to people uh, from my time with Atkins in in Aberdeen is when you're laying out an office don't put desks in the corner face in the corners <laughs> You have four desks in a square room, yeah. put them in the middle so that everyone can see each other and talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and that was the setup, I kid you not. Beautiful old building on Golden Square, which is like, a, a, I think it's um, actually renowned for being like the queer um, joint or catch up place in the evenings. But anyway, it's where all the oil and, oil and gas engineering people are. Uh, and that was the setup. Uh, and the other memory I have is that at lunchtime, I used to get up and go out and walk around the Granite City. But the other people in that room would play Doom. So it's like being XL monkey for four hours. And then Martin, the boss, would say, right, should we have a game? And then they'd all basically put Doom on for three quarters of an hour, play Doom, and then switch back to XL. I was just like, that wasn't a great experience, that bit. So there's a funny story here, though, where um, I came in to work uh, sorry, and I should say, before I left, I had a bit of a, I mean, this is a bit, <laughs> looking back, I don't know what I was thinking. I was probably a bit um, uh, bit too proud of myself, but I had like a leave-in party for me going, uh, leaving London. Okay. I'd only been there for like six months or something. Did you organise your own yeah. leaving party? Yeah. <laughs> so um, so at this leaving party, a lad, who, I'd also joined a rugby club in London and um, a guy called Tom Craven, who was the fullback, came along and he ran, he just started his own recruitment business. And Tom kind of said, you're, you're mad. You're going to hate it. You shouldn't go. Why don't you come and work for us? Um, and I was just like, nah, not going to do it. Not going to do it. And fair play, Tom, on the first of each month, he contacted me. How's it going? Are you still enjoying it? Any second thoughts? And he did that month after month. Sounds like a recruiter, Steve. <laughs> Say again? Sounds like a recruiter. Well, exactly. And then on the 1st of November, 99, I walked into work in Aberdeen. And I kid you not, I had about a foot of snow on my head by the time I got there. 
and and I got in and the email was there and I was like, yeah, I am into this. <laughs> I've had enough of not playing Doom and walking around in the rain and generally being freezing, even though the rugby club was good. And actually, you know, my love for engineering wasn't there. It was yeah. just I, in London, one of the bosses said, in 20 years, Steve, you could be in my, my role. And I thought, oh, my God, that's my entire life. That that was yes. yeah. There's nothing more scary than being told by someone in charge of you in a job you hate that in at some point you'll be sitting in my chair. I'm out. Yeah. I'm done. Like oh, exactly. <laughs> and I think that was the beginning of the end of it. So so I I basically decide right. I'm done. And then I have and I think all of us have had this moment in our lives where I had to write a re- resignation letter mm. for the first time. And you you overthink it, don't you? You think oh, ultimately you just you know. For people here, don't hold back. Just go and tell someone. You don't have to come up with some grandiose letter that's got fancy words in it. So I print off this letter and I walk to the office printer. And as I get there, um, the boss, Martin, is there and he's printed something off as well. So I'm just like, hell. Um, uh, And he goes, oh, this one's for you, is it, Steve? (laughs) And he gives it to me. And he goes, well, actually, this one's for you as well. And he gives it to me, and it was a pay rise. Oh. <laughs> to 24 grand. And I was just like, oh. <laughs> and so I'm holding these two pieces of paper. And I, and I, and I fair play, I, I'm proud of it. I said, actually, I'm sorry, Martin. I'm really grateful for this, but I'm giving you this. Yeah. Um, and he was a bit shocked. And so off I went back to London uh, to join Dome Recruitment. So what was it that made you think, you know, obviously you've got your mate who's sort of telling you, telling you you're good at it. Was there anything else about recruitment that made you think, oh, I like the idea of having a chat with people, helping people out, you know, so, because, you know, you've said earlier you, you had a, um, you know, everything that you do kind of helping people out and being involved in that aspect of things runs through everything you do. Uh, recruitment is, of course, helping people out, getting people jobs, having a chat with people, being sociable. Was that, did, would you say the two kind of, you know, that, that kind of influenced the decision or was it just because you didn't want to be cold and wet? <laughs> I mean, basically, you've just answered it, haven't you? And I've never, genuinely, I've never thought of it in those terms before. But that's what I was doing. I was helping people out. And, um, and of course, when people think of a recruitment consultant, I think generally it's not a great framing of, uh, you know, they're, they're up there with car salesmen and double glazing people, estate agents. <laughs> I did hear uh, something before about a guy. I was a guy said, oh, "I've got. I, I'm. You know, I love my job, but I'm probably the most hated man in the world. I'm recruit. I'm a, I'm a recruiter who specialises in estate agents." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I bet he's got some stories though. Probably. Yeah, <laughs> I, I would wager that. So look, I, I think that was it, and and that's how Tom pushed it to me, and I I, I loved it basically. I, th- I think it had started by we had an away match against Lewis on the south coast. And um, it was my first game for the firsts. And on the bus on the way back, I ended up at the front of the bus, MC in the journey back to London, basically. And a lot of these old kind of blues were just like, who the heck's this kid, you know, that's suddenly, who do you think he is? And I just remember, I can't remember, just kind of getting people up to sing or whatever it was, or tell a story, tell a joke. And Tom saw something in that that said to him, like, this guy can... You know, he can communicate, he can engage with people. 
Um, he can, he's persuasive and he was willing to roll the dice, you know, okay. and also they were just starting out. So uh, I got, got back for the interview. I remember it. They're both ex army. So Tom and Steve O'Neill and, um, they they'd managed to get an office in, I don't know what it was like some kind of RAF or I don't know, but basically I went into this building and, um, there was a double, uh, double staircase going up that peeled off to both sides. I was just like big red carpet, Axminster carpet going up it, yeah. wood panelled walls. And I walk into the office, picture of the Queen over the fireplace in, in the office. <laughs> I was just like, oh, I'm not into that. Yeah. Um, um, sorry. Sorry for any royalists listening, but not my bag. But went, went in and I really liked them. And yeah, for me, it was all about, you know, the opportunity to, to engage with people and, and consult people, not Excel. Um, it's as simple as that. Um, and there was, I, I should add the carrot of money. Um, okay. and I'd racked up decent debts at university and Atkins whilst paying reasonably well, you know, it could have been a lot better. And, and that's the, you know, that was the promised land of recruitment. Yeah. And that, that came good. Uh, what kind of training or sort of skills did you kind of get in that? Or was it more thrown into the deep end? I, I don't think Tom or Steve would mind me saying, you know, they were new to it. And so, they, you know, they actually, they did invest in it. And, you know, but I, at that point, it was proper valleys. Yeah. So I, I talked like that and it would be right. Um, I, yeah, uh, Mr. High Flying Investment Banker up, up in Canary Wharf, uh, Steve Dimmick, you from dorm. And they just hang up on me every time. So, you know, I'd be calling. And, and it was attritional and I would say, and I, I have said, you know, I think that's why my, my accent has flattened is that it was through those cuts and bruises that I got by getting hung up on over and over again, that subconsciously, I think I, I was trying to talk posh as, as I thought of it back then. And yeah. And so they, <laughs> I remember the first ever call I made out. So they, it, this is God, I'm going to show my age here. Um, they gave me the phone book and it was just like, pick any company. And so I just picked the company, picked up the phone, called it. And it was a recruitment agency. <laughs> and it was kind of like, I don't know if you ever hear it. There was a Scott Mills thing where he calls a Chinese restaurant and then he connects them to another Chinese yes. restaurant. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> kind of talking to each other. So it was kind of like that. And neither of us was getting anywhere, basically. So, so I, it took me six months to make my first placement, which I then went on to run recruitment businesses. And I would, I, uh, I was going to say I would never, I maybe only afforded one person that kind of patience in all my time running a recruitment agency. And they were really patient with me and I'll be perennially grateful for that. Um, and look, you know, I, I ended up staying with them for 12 years. Um, okay. uh, five of them in London and, and seven back in Cardiff. Right. And, um, it was, you know, I'm not going to say the making of me because it, it takes a lots of, lots of pieces to create a jigsaw, but you, you learn a lot doing that kind of job. Yeah. yeah. I can imagine. I can imagine. I personally, the idea of cold calling fills me with so much fear and dread that I'd cry and curl up into a ball. Uh, if I had to, if I had to pick up the phone and try and do the cold sell to someone. So yeah, it's, it's a real skill and art um and perseverance to to be able to do that 
but then so you did that you did that in london and then you said you yeah. moved uh back to cardiff after five years what was the deal there with the with, did, they, did they trust you to open an office in cardiff or <laughs> we were doing well in london i think we were up to 35 staff in an office in putney but in uh 2001 i met who is now my ex-wife but met met with ellen and uh, we got together yeah by 2004 we were living then um in West London and it was just like, right time to, you know, we want to start a family um, and we don't want to start a family in London. Okay. Um, Ellen had grew up, uh, grown up in Nantla in North Wales. Um, I grew up in, in Blainer in South Wales. We'd both living in London. We both wanted city life. You know, we didn't want to go back to the sticks as it were. And, and I think we both needed, you know, we wanted that career element as well. And so, yeah, we come back uh, in 2004 and got a little place in uh, Canton. Uh, yeah, so that was what brought us back, basically. And, and and it was on the basis of, at that time, I was the high biller, you know, I was the top performer for, for Dome at that time. And I knew I had the ability to say, you know, use me or lose me, basically. So I, I, need, I need to move back to Wales. You've talked about setting up a second office. Um, two of the directors at that point were from Leeds, so I think there was an interest in doing it in Leeds. Um, and I think I just forced their hand a little, really. Um, and so started from the back bedroom uh, and then eventually moved into some offices on Cathedral Road. Cool. So then um, you did that for seven years, five years, seven years? Yeah, so back in, in uh, Wales, so we get back in Cardiff in 2004, and then it would have been... Yeah, 2011, I eventually, um, well, I, I stayed with them, sorry, until 2009, and then set up my own thing in 2009. Um, so there was a financial crash um, in, in 2008, 2009. And towards in that period, I had about 10 people working for me, but I was getting calls from London. And in Cardiff, we were doing quite well. Um, but in London, they were like really, really suffering. And so that office there went from 35 down to 20 overnight, and then it was whittling away. And so I was literally getting the call saying, you need to sack this person. You need to sack that person. And I was just like, but they've hit target for the last three months running. And they're just saying, I can't do it. So eventually it was me and one graduate lad who we were paying you know, peppercorn salary to. And then I, he left and then it was me on, I was, I, I remember for a period, I was on 50% of whatever you bring in. Right. So no salary and fair play to Ellie, my ex-wife. She said, but Steve, if you did your own thing, you'd be on a hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you got 10 years experience? Why don't you start your own thing? And that's what caused me then to kind of say, right, chips in, I'm done. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for the support, but I can't go on like that. And I, so I set my own recruitment consultancy then. And they were like, you left on good terms with the guys there. Yeah, I'm still, you know, still mates with them and catch up with them from time to time. Um, they're, yeah, they're just top people. Um, so you start up your own thing, which is was Dimix, Dimix Recruitment, yeah, well the home of the video job ads, I believe. Well, you've done more research on this than me. <laughs> so yes, this was... This I just was remember exciting. that. <laughs> and I think this was... Um, oh, you know, by definition, this was the naissance of uh, my entrepreneurial street, I guess. So this is where it came through. And um, the idea was to go into 
our clients and film the people talking about what they needed. And so job specs were, you know, identical. You couldn't tell one from the other. But so often, you know, candidates would say to me, well, I'm not sure, you know, the job isn't, it just looks like every other job, but that boss is amazing. Yeah. And I want to join that company because of that boss. I w worked with Mark Heatley uh, to build a website. And I w went up to London with Lloyd Morgan from Rockadove. Um, and we went around London uh, filming with some uh, various different clients. And yeah, there was there was some fun moments. Yeah, so I'd mainly been recruiting for digital people all, all, all my career to that point. Um, but obviously at this point I had to take whatever I could get. And once we were in situ, you know, you needed to make as much, uh, take as much footage uh, and jobs as you could. And I remember taking one for an accountant and I was thinking, oh God, I don't know how to recruit from an accountant. But the guy, the chief finance officer was brilliant. He just said, you've got to be good enough to be able to come in on a Friday when these lots, and he pointed behind him, when these lot are all still drunk from the night before and off their faces, and you've got to be able to get their, you know, their, their, their numbers from them and get them into something coherent. So that's what we're looking for. And I was just like, and suddenly, you know, seeing that as an accountant, that would either scare you and make you want to run a million miles yeah. or be like, oh my God, I want to work there, you know? Uh, and so I felt it, it had um, real potential, but the other element at play here was that, and, and I was still doing normal recruitment. Yeah. So that was the, I was trying to scale that, I guess this is what I would call it now, but I would never say it in those days. So I was trying to kind of find a market for, for that uh, and, and the market proposition and get the market fit for it right. But in the background, I was still doing your, your everyday kind of recruitment and posting jobs on job boards and whatnot. But the main reason for all of this was that by now, the second child had arrived. So I had a daughter, Edis, in 2007, son Clay in 2009, and, uh, and they were both growing up and it was pretty challenging and I was trying to help out by you know, doing more stuff around the house. So it gave me that flexibility where, to be fair, with the other, you know, with Dome, it, it's not like anyone was checking on me. But psychologically, when you're working for someone, or certainly I feel like this, you, you feel like, you know, you need to be there and doing the hours and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. Because I think I quite regularly think looking at looking at my two kids, uh, looking at my career, I don't understand how people with actual jobs do this. Like, mm. I don't I just don't get it. How how can you have a full time job that is reliant on someone else and have to have to answer to someone else and not just be able to take the afternoon off because your kid needs you. Yeah. Like it, you just, you know, if the kids are sick or they've got an inset day or something, it's like, all right, that's fine. They're just downstairs. I'll just catch up in the evening. Whereas if you had a job and you had to go somewhere <laughs> and there was people who relied on you when you've got young children, I just, it blows my mind how people manage to do it. Um, yeah. Because my job is, I don't think of my job as a real job half the time building websites for people. <laughs> Cool. So you went, um, you're trying to scale, scale that business up and, um, it was a success because you did that for, well, quite a few years, really, didn't you? Yeah. So I kept that going and I kept it in tandem with, um, some other stuff that I ended up doing then. So even actually, you know, we got, we're jumping ahead a little here, but whilst I started Dupol, I was able to kind of keep it. I'll, I'll talk about that separately, but I, I was able to keep a bit of a, a recruitment thing 
going um, at the start of that as well. And, you know, I had a, a part of my contract was that I could do one day a, a month kind of dealing with ongoing stuff because I had contractors running. And so there was a role in revenue from those. And I didn't really want to kind of lose that just because. So, um, uh, so yeah, I, I kept doing that for quite a few years and some lessons along the way, you know, the video thing, I don't think anyone's really done that well. And I'd still, I do still think it's a strong idea. I think nowadays people just do it gonzo style. You wouldn't, you know, you'd just do it in house. So you have, you know, a colleague talk about what you need and why you need it. But I still think it's kind of underutilized and I, I could imagine uh, a LinkedIn experience where, <clears throat> you know, the job ads that are on there are videos rather than just text. It, it doesn't make sense. You know, the technology's come on so far now. You know, yeah. from that first meeting at um, the RAF or the converted army building or whatever that I was in, in that office, we used to take it in turns to go on the internet computer. Like literally that was what it was called, the internet. And we we would fax CVs. So that's how they got, they, you know, it was, it was so crazy. And I was just at the pinch point where that, email started becoming ubiquitous you know so yeah you've gone um made a success out of the recruitment business the video yeah. i guess kind of didn't take off now i suppose you do it all through tiktok wouldn't you yeah exactly careers yeah, yeah. on tiktok um and then yeah you kind of came out with that and i think the next thing i heard from you is that you were starting a creative agency yeah so this is i guess and this is where ignite came to play so I th what I would add to all of this, Alex, is that I've always done things extracurricularly, extracurricularly yes. as well um, from the sports stuff. So, you know, I've always I enjoyed the, the kind of playing rugby and um, playing football or playing golf or whatever it is. But then moreover, the creative stuff I've tried to be involved with. So I started Instagram as Cardiff um, in, and Instagram as Wales. So that mm -hmm. was kind of a walking or a club where you'd meet up once a month and, you know, have a stroll around. Um, and that they, they took off and did really well. And we had some really good bunch of people there that enjoyed that passion around photography primarily, but the app allowed it to be funneled. And I really enjoyed that, you know, meeting again, it's about meeting new people, yep. improving things for them. Um, started the book club. And so Cardiff Red back in 2010 you know I was there and so that's now Cardiff's longest running book club and so it's another kind of a creative exploit but all of this stuff just creates circles upon circles upon circles of people that I'm connected with and yeah. go through one thing or another and when I cycle to school with the kids the kids don't realize it because if this ever happened I would understand it in Bliner where you say hello to every other person mm. but in Cardiff that's quite different and and I sound like I'm blowing my own trumpet here, but and in a way I am. But there's two decades worth of basically connecting with people around you. Yes. Um, and it's there's a huge amount of value in that. Whilst it has been work stuff that has done it, I guess for the creative agency, so it's called Small Joys. That was started because of doing Ignite, and so Ignite was started by um, other people way more talented and intelligent than I. So. Uh, Neil Cocker and Claire Wally. Could you give us a bit of a run through as to what what was Ignite? Yeah, sorry. So we should, I, you kind of it, it, it's such a big part of my life, I guess, or <laughs> well, not a big part, but it's it's such an important part of my life that 
um, I think that people are completely okay with it. But so Ignite was an evening of, we used to do 10 talks and each talk was five minutes long. And that consisted of 20 slides, each one of which would stay up for 15 seconds. Uh, they would automatically flip on. So the challenge as uh, one of the speakers, and you could speak about anything or everything, there was no theme or topic. Um, and we had some uh, a kind of a cross section of uh, of speakers, shall we say, yeah. you know, some some who were cross and some who should be sectioned. Um, <laughs> but but we lo I loved them and I loved hosting it and I loved introducing those people onto the stage. Of course, yours was, you know, uh, one of my favorites. And, and I, I think you you delivered it brilliantly. It, it was a, it was a really good one, and I'm not saying that. Um, and so that went from sixty people upstairs in O'Neill's, um, you know, rattling around in a big old space up there when we took it on. And and I've got to say here, Ed Barnett was the the primary propulsion for this. We then decided as a group, and I should some, uh, name check the others. So there's Mark from Corolo. James, uh, James Hardin, who did the, the video stuff for us, um, Miranda, who did the social, and, and James, who did the PR stuff as well. Uh, and we went from there over to what was then the old porters, or sorry, was the new porters, but it's now the old porters. Now the old porters, yeah. And we went from, in no time at all, we scaled that to like 180 people. And I remember after doing, I think, about 10 of them there, and it was bi-monthly, they were free, but after 10 of them, we the ticket sold out in something like 21 seconds so it and and we had over 500 people on the site trying to buy tickets at the time so yeah. we went from there to glee club so capacity went from 180 to about 450 and and we were filling the glee club every other month and yeah. so from the glee club we finished so the ignite 30 so we went to the donald gordon theater so from 450 people to 1800 people and that was charged that was five pound a person and all of the money that we made went to charity uh, but we filled that and and so and at that the mic drop was you know we're done that's the end of it but also ed proposed to uh, the lovely Gemma, and, and she said yes on stage in front of 1800 people and so that was a huge kind of momentum shift for me in terms of and, and genuinely, this is a little embarrassing to say, but I had moments where people would come up to me and go, hi, Steve, no idea who they are. And and I'd been on the stage and they'd been in the crowd and they people just kind of feel they know you. And, they, you know, they, and this person had come to like seven or eight of them and at three different venues or whatever it was, but I had no idea who they were. So Ignite was amazing. And we had, you know, some really emotional moments, but the whole piece there was, and this isn't why I did it. I did it for the love of it. I, I absolutely loved doing that and I miss it regularly. I have pangs of bittersweet joy when I think about it. Why did you give it up? We gave it up because it was a lot of work and we were all busy. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, Ed, kind of like me with the, the second child arriving and wanting to start my own business. Ed was getting married, wanting to start a family. I think we were all, James um, Harding was, I think doing something with his business. James Davis was uh, just got engaged and was moving to Newport. So things were just generally kind of transitioning away from right. being this. And it was a pretty crazy night. Yeah. So I really got home early and, yeah, uh, yeah. 
uh, and regularly got home messy. So it, it would, you know, it took its toll. And that got passed on and others have tried to kind of, you know, continue it with greater or lesser success. Uh, but the whole point of this is that Ignite um, connected me to many, many more people than I could have through, uh, let's say, the recruitment work. Um, but then Cardiff Red connected me to people and they overlapped with other people. And then the Instagrammers Cardiff connected me to people. And then I got involved with Creative Mornings Cardiff. And, and so I would urge everyone to, you know, if you've got a real interest and a, a passion for something, it's, it's a really good idea to start a side project or, or a thing where you're at the center of it. Mm -hmm. because then people come to you and you become renowned for that thing. And if that's a, if you want to, you know, succeed in a creative space, then doing a creative thing that is not for profit or, you know, just doing it because you can do it is a really good idea. And you learn so much through doing it as well. Um, and I, I, you know, and I've still got a long way to go, but I think that I, the stagecraft from my side of the stuff, I honed over time and I got better and some things fell flat. Some things were, were great. Um, but I can now stand in front of thousands of people and, you know, talk without a, an ounce of fear, without any, any nerve. Well, there's nerves, of course there's nerves, but I don't worry about it because I know I can, I can make it through. And that was what Ignite gave me. Um, and that allowed me then. So the other thing is that whilst you were one of the speakers, another one was a guy called Mark Thomas. Mark was uh, a kind of grad from Cardiff School of Journalism and amazing with words, good with design, handy with development. So a bit of a polymath. And he was working at Morgan Arcade at the time. Morgan Arcade's landlord decided to double their rent overnight. None of the people in the studio could afford to stay there. And Mark said, right, I've been thinking about it for a while. This is the nudge I need. I'm going to start my own agency. I'm, I can build the websites, I can write the copy, I can design stuff, but I can't sell. I need someone who can sell. Can you sell for me? Okay. And that was how Small Joys came to be. Jeez, that took about 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's all good. I mean, Ignite was a big part of that. And Ignite, I feel like you definitely have to include Ignite in your story because, as you well, said, yeah. it's such a, a, such a large part of um, what you did. Um, and it happened in parallel with with all the yeah. other, like a lot of the stuff that was happening at the time. Um, but that sort of conversation with Mark, was it, did Mark get in touch with you and say, hi, Steve, I'm starting an agency. I need you to sell some stuff uh, for me. Or was it more of a, you know, he, he didn't just put the message out into the ether, like how, open to having a chat with people. Um, you know, he came to you directly. No, he came to me yeah. and that was it. Um, and I think I was in one of those, who's the guy who did the book about say yes to everything? I can't remember, but I was in one of those kinds of places and I think generally I'm one of those people anyway and I have to get better at saying no but it, I don't know it, it doesn't half kind of give you some treats along the way so yeah Mark and I decided to kind of give it a go um, um I managed to get Visit Wales to allow us to launch their Instagram platform uh, their offering on Instagram and so we did some campaign work with, with uh, Visit Wales uh, we did some stuff with WJEC so not really sexy, but just a bit of design and uh, a rebranding uh, piece of work there. And that was using a contact that I had from my recruitment days. Yep. So I used to recruit for WJC. And the interesting one that we didn't quite get was uh, we tried to get um, the 
the Big Lunch, which is a, a thing sponsored by the Eden Project. Okay. And it was basically that you can close the roads and everyone takes their tables out into the road and you basically your street has a big lunch together. Oh, and nice. it happens every June. Um, and it's and they were and it, so it was exciting for us because what they were realizing was that after doing it for kind of like a decade, it was mainly Guardian reading tree huggers that were into it, but they wanted to kind of get different types of people involved. <clears throat> and so they wanted to do a social campaign. And our idea was about, you know, people meeting at the big lunch that wouldn't normally meet. Okay. Um, and so we created these kind of videos and it was so much fun filming this. <laughs> um, so we, one of them was basically this guy looking down the ca uh, camera and saying, I'll never forget it. We used to catch our eyes, you know, passing on the street um, and, you know, putting out the bins and that kind of stuff. Um, there was just a bit of electricity there. And I, I knew that I felt it and I hoped that she felt it. And da, 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 da. and then he's basically talking about like, and then the big lunch came and then, and then I met Margaret. <laughs> and so basically we got this 23 year old bloke okay. and, and literally my, uh, my kids like, uh, oh, sorry, my ex-wife's auntie Marion, her old neighbor, I think she was 75. Right. Um, and we've got, and he's there holding hands with Margaret and it's like, you know, and, and it's just been bliss ever since. And, and we wanted for them to kiss at the end. Um, We're and not up for it. Uh, well, and it was just all a bit too like, much. but basically what we went for was like a cut to black. And then I said, the boy said, I say boy, the young man said, um, I, you, you know, even the sound of her, there was something about her, the sound of her teeth in the in the glass and so the knife the, the kind of cut to black and then it was just the sound of false teeth Click. dropping into a glass of yeah. water um so we did that and we had like um we had another one where it was um uh, russian dolls so all these people who like dressing up as russian dolls and they were all sat on a bench together oh. all wearing the same clothes but just slightly smaller slightly smaller as they go down the yeah. bench yeah and then a, a, a mime who met a woman who spoke really, really quickly. And so this a Mark dressed up as a mime with the white gloves and the white paint on the face and the beret and the striped top top. And we got this girl to like speak super fast. Uh, and Mark was just kind of doing his mime impression. So that was, it was, it was such a cool project. And, and we had the script signed off. Um, and then ultimately, and this was a real sad one for me, was that uh, Eden Project kind of said, we're not going to do it. We're not going to put it out. It's too edgy and it's too risky. Um, and we, the idea with Small Joys was that um, every project we worked on, we would add a little piece that wasn't paid for. Right. So there would be a small joy. Um, and so even for that one, we created um, for the Eden Project, we, we created a Spotify playlist that was kind of like, I don't know, full of all sad songs about you leaving us. And, and we kind of sent that over, like no bad feelings. But yeah, Small Joys was the, the launch pad for other stuff then as well. Because, yeah, obviously for, you went from Small Joys and then was it a side project of Small Joys, Dupole? Uh, or do Loop as it was? Yeah. Uh, what happened was the WJEC um, uh, gave us a brief to do a, a few different bits of work. Um, and one of them was a rebrand, um, and we'd kind of gone through a whole branding process, which, you know, um, was 
pretty detailed. And, and it was all with the marketing director and people within the marketing team. It all gone pretty well. And we put put in this kind of solution that, that we'd, we'd offered to them. And that was all fine. And then a week later, she called up to say that uh, we were ha- going to have to wait because somebody on the board had to give it the once over. And this person on the board was off on a skiing holiday and they got back, you know, two weeks later and said, I don't even like the name. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so we were literally back to square one. Um, and we realised, and it had happened on a few other bits and bobs, where people who weren't in the room mm. had a massive impact and influence on whether our work got signed off. And so we had some great times working with a guy called Sam Gowdy, developer. And you know, we basically what what we said was, why can't we create like a um, a simple survey thing where people can answer anon- anonymously um, and ask them to send it out to everyone in the organisation. Uh, rather than us just speaking to the marketing team, let's get input from everyone. And then when we present something, if they say, oh, I don't like the name, we can say, well, 80% of your staff chose that as their favorite name. And that was, and it was genuinely like a tiny little web app that that we started with, which was a, a simple survey platform. We were building it with a JavaScript platform um, that was uh, that operated in real time. And that was a kind of benefit that we hadn't thought about. Um, so suddenly it, it had this functionality where you could get instant answers. So we were in a meeting then with um, University of Man- uh, sorry, University of Swan- Swansea School of Management. And actually this was the meeting that got us funding. <laughs> so, so we're in this meeting, we, we're pitching for like creative projects with um, Swansea School of Management. And our idea was a kind of circular uh, in a in a common room area to have a circle of exercise bikes with desks on them so that students could kind of exercise, power their own laptops whilst looking at each other and seeing each other and having a conversation. Sounds like a bit of a power stance kind of thing, like staring at someone while you're pedaling as hard as you can. I'm yeah. going to do it. I'm going to do it. A bit, a bit tense, I feel. So anyway, it, of course, it's an awful idea. And they were <laughs> okay. just like, No. <laughs> But um, during the meeting, we kind of said, oh, well, this is how we would gather feedback. Mm. And they said, oh, my God, but this is amazing. Right. Okay. And, and they said, you know, is this yours? And I'm like, yeah, it is actually. Um, and I said, oh, so, you know, show, show it me again. And so we then kind of riffed and come up with. And by the end of the meeting, they had agreed to pay us three and a half grand a month to have this platform and be able to use it with students. So we were just like, oh my God, you know, we were ex- hoping to get 5K, you know, and, and, and then, uh, you know, and of course all, all the costs uh, to deliver that project. Uh, and we came away with this other thing. So then we kind of sat in a Starbucks and we're just like, well, actually, you know, maybe this should become the, the main event. So fast forward a few months, we kind of pulled together a prototype and uh, we were thinking, yeah, we should probably try to get investment. I contacted a guy I, I, I knew um, who I knew was you know, pretty well off and basically demoed it to Conrad. Um, okay. there's, a, there's a funny story here in that we were on Skype and in the midst of it, um, uh, my son, um, yeah, he did his business in, in quite a phenomenal way. I got up off the sofa put the laptop down, 
not realizing they put the laptop down facing you know the scene of the crime so conrad then had to watch me changing my son's nappy in the middle of a pitch i, I, I feel it was worse, worse <laughs> but worse. we still got it um so then fast forward another couple of months later and yeah we basically having um you know pre-money we had a promise of three and a half grand uh, a month from Swansea University. No other customers to speak of. And we got 300 grand valuing us at a million, which which was crazy um, looking back. But at the time it felt very real and, and we were believing our own hype. Because uh, I think at the time that was what, around 20, 2013, 2014? 2014 we started. 2015 i think we incorporated yeah so that is that was like peak startup i don't want to say like you know dot com 2.0 bubble but there was a definite there was a definite sense i always felt about you know there were companies getting funded left right and center there was money there was yeah. a lot of money flying around from vcs from ancient investors and it was very much a you know, there was a lot of excitement going around at that time of, um, you know, app, you know, apps are a big thing, startups are a big thing, startup culture was a big thing, was, money was cheaper to borrow. Um, and at that time, yeah, there was there was this, like, a definite sense of excitement in Cardiff um, yeah. around, around the startup world. A hundred percent. That's very much the kind of um, scenario we found ourselves in. I think that aligned to it then, in the following years become the, the co-working boom. Um, and, you know, there were co-working places popping up left, right and center. But I remember in our dealings with DevBank, Warren Favell had gone through and raised money for- Nudged. What, nudged, that was it. Um, and he had been pretty condemning of, of the, the paperwork basically that was involved. All credit to him because what was then Finance Wales had a real rethink of for seed funding of, of you know small businesses. Do we really need all of this? And so it got paid back to minimal paperwork okay. uh, to the point where our angel investor was a bit blown away by like how little uh, DevBank were asking for um, in in terms of uh, securities and whatnot. So so it was a really quick process, and yeah, it was it was it, you know. Uh, quite a um, humbling experience, really. You know, just having that faith put in you. Uh, but we, you know, we flew straight into making massive mistakes. So our first hire for a brand new software company uh, was a salesperson uh, with zero experience of selling software, and only ex previous job was as a fine art salesperson. Uh, we brought in account manager within uh, a few months. We didn't have any accounts. We didn't even have a customer um, and, you know, and we made a bunch of different mistakes, but also we did some good stuff. Yeah. So we, we started selling, we, we tidied up the products, um, you know, we went through feature releases, pretty directionless though, I would say, you know, we were, you know, let's just build, build and build and, and then, you know, we'll see what sticks. Uh, but we got some good wins. I think a, a year or so later, we won the, um, so Michael Moritz startup of the year, uh, beaten out Amplify and I think Wealthify, Wealthify who, who clearly went on to bigger and better things. Uh, so it was, it, was, it was a good, fun start, you know, many challenges ahead. 
Yeah, because then uh, I guess you uh, do poll. Well, it, it started as do loop, which then has to change to do poll, I believe, because of a, a trademark yeah. dispute. Um, yeah. Which was a shame because do poll is uh, it's an ambigram. Um, do so loop was an ambigram. Do, yes, do, yeah. do loop is an ambigram, but do poll is not. Um, yeah. But, you know, there we go. And, and somewhere I've still got the scribbles of where we were trying to come up with how to design it. And yeah, I think basically it's the German version of MTV is called Do Loop. And we got a cease and desist from them early on. And we were just like, okay, this is not a hill I'm going to die on. Yeah, yeah we can, we'll, we'll give up the name. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. So you ran that for, uh, was it three years, three, four years? Uh, well, in total. So, 2015 and then ended up you know selling next in last year so eight years in total eight years um, wow. yeah so i started it in my 30s mm -hmm. and and <laughs> finished it what feels like about three decades later right. um yeah yeah because of course over the running of do paul um sam left uh yeah. fairly early on and then of course mark left um after the what should have been the big success but turned into quite a headache for you i believe with the the newspaper deal that's, that's an interesting one i think there's as ever there's you know different versions of stories aren't there and um so yeah sam sam left after just two years or so we've done we we had a guy called james hardin a different one from the ignite one i should add um that uh, was our developer at that point and James manfully stepped up and took that kind of lead technical role. Mark and I then, you know, took things forward and obviously there was an, a, a supporting cast of, of, of many as well. But COVID, you know, really hit us hard. I think we were struggling a little in terms of direction and what was going to work pre-COVID, but COVID was a real hammer blow for us. We lost a lot of business pretty quickly as people looked at their uh, you know, their outgoings and said, right, what is business critical? And and we fell into that nice to have category rather than business critical. So alongside that, though, we were making inroads with uh, Wales Online, um, uh, whose parent company is Reach, and Reach run about 270 different versions of Wales Online, basically. So in COVID, we agreed to do a trial with them on the basis that if it went well, we kind of switch over and you know have a contract with them uh and we ran what was the biggest private company survey of of people in the uk with you know about covid so in in the space of six days we had over 22 million answers replied by over 400 400 people wow. and we gathered nearly fifty thousand emails for, for reach which was way way infinitely more than we had done in the seven years or six years preceding that uh, and in the build-up to this there was a fun moment where we put a survey on uh, the wales online page for the wales versus england game um, and james shut the website down because he thought we were under dds attack <laughs> and he was just like there there's literally thousands of people trying to answer a survey at once and, like something's going up i don't know what it is and we're like, this is exactly what we want. Yeah, yeah. This is this is actually the des the desired outcome of what we're trying to achieve. That was the kind of first bit. We then did something with the leader debate with Boris Johnson and and the likes, uh, and that went really well. And then so that gave us the pass then to do a bigger piece across the the whole kind of or not the whole estate, but we did it across ninety different websites in total. Mm -hmm. I think. 
so yeah, suddenly we had a situation where we had all this data and we were, I was delighted. I was just like, we have proven that this thing can work at scale and, you know, getting nearly half a million uh, people to take part is a massive achievement. 22 million answers is, is incredible. Well done us, you know, this is, this is good work. Then Reach said, well, we're a newspaper ultimately. And Boris Johnson is going to be doing something on Friday. So we need this stuff by Thursday. And we were like, okay, we'll do that. And then realized we could not get the data out of our servers. You know, so it was way, way more. And we'd been um, paying uh, AWS, whatever we'd been paying them to kind of scale and scale and scale. But then we didn't have any infrastructure or uh, software basically capable of getting all of that data out. And so we ended up then paying a small fortune to us at that point to DevOps group, um, who were absolutely brilliant. You get what you pay for. And with them, it was top notch. And, um, and they got that data out for us, but it was a period when we didn't have a lot of money at bank. And so using a load of money to get data out for a project we weren't getting paid for was a painful experience. And I think when Mark uh, has told this story that that's the bit that sticks in his craw. For me, I look back and I still, I would still have done it again because it was, you know, we wanted to prove that, uh, we could achieve it. I only wish that we would, we had been able to do it three, four, five years earlier when we had more money at bank. And, and so, yeah, but that was a, a, a real kind of, and, uh, you know, that's the roller coaster you're on as an entrepreneur, yeah, is you get those moments and. There's real highs. I remember when we signed a contract with O2 and it was just amazing that O2 were going to be using our, and we had the UK CEO of O2 using Dupole in his presentations and stuff like that. I look back on and think, F yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. And and for me, as, he, as I've said a few times, a rugby buff, you know, I, I we were using Dupole in the Principality Stadium in the VIP lounges to engage with the audiences there and, TV presenters would be kind of quoting or commenting on the on the answers, and I got to watch it's Wales versus Scotland, isn't it? In a in a, a week or so, I got to watch Wales versus Scotland with Ian McGeechan, just he and I, and a bottle of red wine. If we hadn't started Dupol, I would never have had that experience. And so I, I look back with you know bittersweet memories of it all, but there are moments like that where you think, yeah, this is you you can't forget those for all those troughs. You've got to remember the peaks as well. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. And then you ended up in a position where uh, you sold. Yeah, so Mark, um, unfortunately, yeah, Mark had some kind of personal stuff happening at the end of 21 and furloughed, uh, needed to furlough himself. I think that gave him time to take stock um, and he was approached uh, about a role and, you know, he was due back and, and a week before that called and said, look, I'm going to take this other job. Uh, so for me, that was pretty tough um, and, and quite challenging. But you understand, you know, people got to do what they got to do. So James, it left James and I at that point, and we were threadbare at that point, running on fumes. And I made the choice to to look to to sell it. Um, we listed it on a few different places. Micro Acquire or Acquire, as it's now known, was uh, where we had some interest. Interestingly, we got an inquiry or a, an expression of interest from the guys at Hopin, who were a real kind of boom and bust um, organization. They kind of did, um, I guess, like a competitor to Zoom during 
yeah, during COVID. And they got shed loads and shed loads of investment. They went on a massive acquisition um, thing. And so the CEO of Hopin expressed an interest. And I was desperate <laughs> to, to get him to agree to, you know, look at it. But sadly, no dice. We engaged with a kind of agent to try and sell it for us. And it was pretty protracted process all in all. And this agent, you know, having had an agreement with them, I think it was a six month agreement. Uh, and they got to the last week and they said, oh, we've got someone, we've got someone. And they're UK based. And, and I was like, okay, great. We spoke to them and then ultimately the offer they were making was like 20% of what we got from Question Pro. And so Question Pro, yeah, we've found us through MicroAcquire, really good experience with all of the people there, pretty straight up. You know, we knew they were pretty clear about what they wanted from us uh, and what they were willing to offer and didn't deviate from that, to be fair. And it's, you know, it was a, it was a, a, a bit of a fire sale in the end because of the, um, the impact that COVID had had on our ARR, our annual recurring revenue. But still something I look back on with pride and I think, you know, it's it's good that we got an exit because so many don't. Yeah, 95, 97% of startups fail, crash and burn and, and don't get to that place. And, and whilst the return to the investors isn't what they would have hoped for um, when, when they put the money in, you know, I I think that we, we gave it our best shot. And I, and I look back and think, yeah, we, we might have done things differently, but I... I don't think we fail through lack of endeavor. No, no, no. And I think the, you know, you say about the investors, they didn't get the money back they were expecting. As an investor, as someone who is investing in businesses, that's the, the risk you've got to take. Like they don't they say that, you know, you're, if you invest in 10 startups, then you can realistically expect nine of them to fail. Um, yeah. and, but you're looking for that one, the one that does succeed massively. So if, as long as it's not failure, I could imagine a lot of investors are fairly happy about the, uh, you know, getting money back. So you sell the company, I guess, you know, what, what happens then? You kind of out in the world, you're free man, you take the job with Awen, you, you know, what was your thinking then? Did you think I'm going to, I'm going to start something new or were you just looking forward to a bit of a going to the, the world of employment? Yeah, so I think in in these circumstances, you it, it's a good time to take stock, isn't it? And you kind of look back and think about where you've come from, where, you, where you're going to. Uh, what's the Bill Gates thing? He kind of says, you know, you you overestimate what you can do in a year, under, underestimate what you can do in 10. And I think that's, you know, maybe where I was at. I was, I was, I was thinking back about why I'd done what I'd done. And yeah, there were all the moments where... Mark had approached me and said, you know, I need, uh, I need someone who can do this. Similar thing with Neil and Claire with Ignite, you know, it's, we, we, we want to move on. But then I look at Dupol and I think the, the driving force for me through running Dupol was to be an example to my children as they were growing up of, you, you can go and do your own thing. You, you don't have to join that management consultancy and be on the climbing the greasy pole because in 20 years you could have my job. You don't have to do that. You live in a world now where you can start your business, you know, and, and so my, literally my 10 year old has been, um, by making bracelets and she's basically looking to create a little shop that she sells bracelets to her friends. And, and I look back at Dupont and think, well, if I've inspired that one way or another, then I'm proud of that. I'm, I'm prouder of that than I am of what happened with the business itself. I then was taking stock and thinking, right, well, what do I want next? And I will say one of the 
elements was financial security or stability, sorry, I should say. Dupont, the exit, by no means am I talking to you now from a gold yacht. Um, <laughs> so there, there was the other pressing need of paying the mortgage. Let's be clear here, it might have looked good on the socials, but actually the realities are that I'm, I needed to get back into employment. And then I thought about, well, what do I want now? What do I want to my children to see me as what, what and and so I go back then to you know that purpose for Owen is making people's lives better mm -hmm. and and that's I felt where they've matured they've seen me go through and do the Dupol thing and now there's an, a chance here for me to lead lead in a, a role where I'm, I'm leading a company that is trying to help people and, and serve people and yeah it sounds a bit righteous but you know it, that that is genuinely like the main driver is I want to work for a company where it is about profit, but that profit gets put into really good use. And it isn't about returns to investors or shareholders or any of that stuff. It's about just making people who by and large have much more challenging lives than us, um, making their lives a little or hopefully a lot better. And I knew obviously that it was a, I will say this for any kind of startup owners um, listening, it's not a quick process, so it, it, there's still bits and bobs that need to be tied off um, with the with the Dupol uh, stuff. And yeah, I'm now a year on from when we announced the sale or thereabouts. Yeah, so uh, and it took six months to get there as well, with all that kind of uh, false hope with the hopping founder and and all of that. You know, you you, you jump through a lot of hoops. So yeah, I think the the two elements were um, that stability. Of, of having a regular salary and also not having to worry about paying other people. <clears throat> so whenever you run your own business, that is perennially front of your mind. And we, and I'm, you know, we always paid our staff first at Dupo, yeah. So Mark, Sam and I, uh, maybe Sam had left too early, but Mark and I definitely didn't pay ourselves whilst we were paying others. Yeah, being able to actually and make contributions to this thing called a pension. Uh, and oh yeah and have allocated you know and to discover and actually know when the bank holidays in a year are these are all new things to me and actually be on leave and not look at your email or and know that you can do that know that someone's got your back and the world's not going to burn if you don't do it so so they're kind of i would say they're the main reasons Okay, so like, I guess, how did this job come up? You just was it was it advertised um, online? You were browsing and thought, "Oh, give it a go." Yeah, that's that's it. So actually, I'll, I'll, I'll say more on the AON one, but it broadly, I applied for thirty-four jobs before I got the AON one. Um, I in total, I think I had five interviews, so twenty-nine that I didn't even get close to, and I thought. <laughs> Pretty interesting, pretty interesting CV, but clearly not. I spoke to someone the other night and they were saying, oh, you know, I've, I've uh, tried for six and I haven't got anything. And I was just like, well, you know, you've got to kiss a lot more print, uh, frogs before you find your prince. And, uh, and there's no shame in that. Yeah, it's, you know, people need what they need. And, and if your CV doesn't catch it, then I, I don't want to be too kind of um, what will be will be. But yeah, there, there is a bit of the universe at play. And so the AWEN job was interesting in that two weeks previous, they'd advertised for trustees. And AWEN, I should add to you, were, were a Dupol customer. And I'd met the CEO a few times, 
really, really liked the cut of his jib. Thought he was a really switched on blow. So yeah, actually, I, maybe I can do something here because I'm transitioning out of Dupol. And obviously at that point, he didn't know it, but I messaged him saying, this is potentially of interest. And then about a fortnight later, they advertised for a commercial director. And I said, just about that expression of interest in the trustee role, I'd like to renege on that and go for this one that's going to be able to pay me a stable salary and, um, and allow me to do what I do best and make a difference in the world. So yeah, I got that. I got that offer. I got two offers and the other offer, I won't say who it was from, but it was for 20 grand more. And, and I opted for Awen and, and I definitely made the right decision. Um, the, the other one was staying in tech and I, and I wish those people, if they do ever listen to this, I, I'm, I'm sure that they're, they're going to be flying without me anyway. Um, but I, I, I look back with no regrets. So, yeah, I think, I think tech is definitely something that, um, it's quite all encompassing for quite a lot of people. It, it drags you, drags you, sucks you in, um, and can drag you down if you're not careful. Um, so having, having that kind of escape from it is, is what a lot of people need. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's great that you've kind of stepped, stepped away from it and into more, more of the things that you find interesting and knowing that you can inspire your kids in such a way is, yeah, it's, it's a great, it's a great feeling. So what does like a, what does a day, day to day look like for you, uh, as a, as a commercial director? What, what's, what does that actually involve? Um, a lot of it, I'm part of the executive leadership team. So our role as an ELT is driving the strategy for the organization, choosing the direction we're going to take, and then obviously disseminating that out to the, the staff uh, that work with us. We've got over 100 full-time staff and about the same again in, in terms of um, casual staff that work at our cafes, restaurants, um, bars and whatnot. Um, so it's primarily looking at the future uh, as much as uh, the present and the past and de deciding you know what what trajectory we're going to take so a, a quick example would be that we run bringaru house uh, for the last eight years that's run as a wedding venue so it's a beautiful 17th century country house in 100 acres yet this building was getting used on a saturday and sunday and and literally monday to friday Empty. nothing happened yeah yeah uh, it's got 19 bedrooms um and so you may have seen you know, we've been advertising for a hotel manager. Yeah. And so we're looking to transition that, like basically sweat the asset, I guess, is, you know, in commercial terms. Okay. It's like, okay, well, why, uh, you know, why isn't that being utilized as, as well as it could be? Um, so that, that's just kind of simple, you know, direct, easy to address, and, and um, we can get working on that pretty quickly. More longer term and, and looking into the future is how do we become a much more sustainable and circular organization? We already create about 43 megawatt hours a year in terms of solar panels and stuff like that, but we could be doing so much more. And we've got a great relationship with Bridgen Council. So one element, and I've had meetings this week, um, is about right, what, how do we create a solar farm? Could, could we create basically a renewable energy visitor attraction that demonstrates how you create solar energy, how you run a wind turbine, how you do ground source heat, how you do air source. And, and so whilst using that energy within the park and at the house ourselves, and then obviously distributing, you know, whatever we, we, we don't use or storing and, and using batteries. So there's, there's elements like that. And then also, you know, our supply chain, looking at our supply chain and how can we improve what we do there. So on that land, we currently grow some apples and we have an apiary. So we, we have a bit of honey 
every now and then. So we have a kitchen that now and then will serve something with some apples in and the odd kind of spoonful of honey on things. Well, we could be doing vegetables and much more fruit and even livestock. Is that something that we can A, do to be much more commercially um, successful um, mm -hmm. because if we're not paying Castes Howell or butchers or whoever else for that stuff and we're making it ourselves, obviously that would be cost effective. Uh, but also in terms of the environment, we're having much less impact few quick examples uh, beyond that it's about looking at the developments we have going on so we are fortunate enough to have been successful in leveling up funding um, and we've got three major capital projects happening so we're redeveloping Porthcore Grand Pavilion 20 million pound project uh, My Stake Town Hall about 9 million project and Amuni in Pont de Prix about 5 6 million pound project and so it's what what are they going to look like when they reopen how are they going to run commercially? What offering are we going to have? How is that going to be programmed? So it's looking after all of those elements. It's it's a really multifaceted role. And sometimes it's quite daunting, but then other times it's super exciting. And, um, and, and the people, I've got to say, the people are just phenomenal. And, it, you know, it's cliche, but they make an organization, don't they? And, uh, and, and the team I've got around me are just really great to work with. Um, we've definitely got our challenges, as does everyone, you know, in the food and beverage industry. Mm. And you have to look at the Conway, um, uh, standard, uh, yeah. yeah, Kindle. You know, they're they're dropping like flies mm. in the moment. It is super super tough. Yeah. So if anyone's listening, you know, go and eat, drink, and be merry at an independent. You know, that hard money uh, you're, you're earning. Yeah, go and support a local independent uh, wherever you are. Um, because they bloody need your help more than ever. Yeah. Right yeah, yeah. There's a lot of places that need a lot of help at the moment. Um, so yeah, I guess support support independence and shop local where you can. Amazing. Thank you so much, Steve, uh, for taking us through through your through your journey. One final question uh, before we before we finish is: if you could go back, do it all again, start from scratch, uh, would you do anything differently about how you've gone on this journey? And would you have liked to have ended up anywhere else? Um, I, I would definitely have done shed loads of stuff differently. I, we, we could spend another hour and a half going over what I would have done differently. Um, do I have regrets? Yeah, I've got some regrets as well. Um, and I, I look back and, you know, I feel sad that I didn't have the bravery to make some decisions at certain points and uh, glad that I did at others. Would I have wanted to end up anywhere else? That's an interesting one. I've not really thought of that one. I, you can spend too long on that stuff. And I, I'm, I'm, I've learned in my dotage that, you know, comparisons are, are unhelpful. And I, 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 don't, I, I don't have days where, and I spoke with my partner about this the other day, I don't look enviously at others and think, oh, I wish that I could fly, on a, fly off to Barbados, to, you know, on a whim to do that. Or I wish I had that car, or I wish I lived in that house. Um, I don't have that. Uh, and I'm, I feel blessed that I'm you know, fortunate enough to feel that way. So I'm, I'm pretty happy where I am, um, both geographically and mentally, emotionally. And yeah, I, I think that I, I've given, uh, I've given what I've, I've got, and um, and I hope I've made a bit of a difference along the way. That definitely sounds like it. And it sounds like you're in a, a, the right place at the moment to continue with that plan of making a difference and helping improve people's lives as you progress 
progress on into mm. you know whatever you do whatever you do next you set yourself up in a position that that will allow you to do that so yeah sounds like sounds like you are exactly where you want to be thank you again steve thanks so much for coming on and having a chat taking us through um all the stuff that you've done about and thanks to everyone who's listened i hope there's been something of worth in there for you uh, feel free to reach out to me i'm sure alex will be sharing um twitter profiles or whatever else but um yeah, yeah if i can help anyone uh, i'm glad to where i can uh, yeah, I'll, I'll drop all your contact details in the in the episode description steve so yeah i'll uh, catch you soon mate cheers cheers bye Can you edit this bit in? So this, I, I had a memory pop up on Facebook today, um, and I, it was from 2020 when I was moving house. Um, and so my dad, in that, in those kind of later years, struggled with his mental health, um, but he turned to poetry, and um, and I think that's my love of words and language comes definitely from him. Um, and so I had uh, kind of I was sorting out as I was moving house. And it, a bunch of his poems come up. But there was a pertinent one this morning that I saw, uh, which is, goes, uh, can't wait until your teens are past, but understand it goes too fast. You'll speed it up and wish you never, for after that, you're dead forever. Um, and I think that the teens are definitely, you know, they're the, they're the salad days, aren't they? They're, they're, they're the, a top period in anyone's life. And I don't think I'm dead forever at all. I, you know, that's not my mindset. But... Um, Thanks so much for listening to episode 5. If you've enjoyed all the way through the episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a review, maybe even sharing it with your friends. Similarly, if you've got a story you would like to tell, feel free to get in touch. The email address is in the episode description, along with the links to some of the things we've spoken about in the podcast today. I'll be back with another episode on Monday next week, so hopefully you'll be hearing from me again soon. Thanks, bye.